hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. So, where previously on Psychology 2606, we were talking about development, of course, and I was talking about work. So, during maturation, the branching starts, dendrites grow more slower than axons. Axons grow pretty quickly. And when I say pretty quickly, again, this isn't something you can watch happen in real time. You could do it time-lapse, but it's pretty slow, I mean, to our eyes, but it's pretty quick for how quickly a neuron will grow. Um, axonic growth is, again, just guided by concentrations of various chemicals that are beyond the scope of the course, right? Um, and it isn't completely understood either. But it's basically, other neurons say, come over here, come over here. That's basically what's happening. So let's talk about synapsing. That's where I think we left off on the slide, which is, I think I said this was big number. freaking number. Anyway. <laughs> the point is, it's a lot. It's, it's a number that we can't even really. Humans can't fathom numbers past about a million. Eh, past about a thousand. Eh, hundred. We have real trouble with numbers past about a hundred a lot of times. Um, but really, definitely past about a million. It's hard to stop. Right. So this couldn't just be pre-programmed. It's obviously going to have to be different concentrations of various chemical messengers uh, sending sending up that information and the axons going that way. Now you've got to understand as well that I thought I had a one there. I got nothing. I thought I had something archer. I thought I had something. Now I just have to drink something for a little while. I'll be doing Yeah, it couldn't be pre-programmed anyway. That's it. So there you go. Chemical messengers saying, come here, come there, come hither and yon. I don't know what that was. Shakespeare? Acting? So, you get synaptogenesis. That's that's called just getting your synapses, right? So, let's talk about cell death. 
There's a concept here called neural Darwinism, which is the notion of this is lose, use it or lose it. So I don't know that I like the term Darwinism in this case, but let's, that's what it's called, so we're going we're gonna to use it. Uh, I don't like it because this isn't about fitness, it's about survival and is a misunderstanding of Darwinian thought, but that, that's beside the point. So what happens here is you're born with more, more neurons than you will ever have, okay? So you've got all these neurons, and as I said the other day, when they don't get a synapse, they die. They just die. Because neurons are very expensive, a lot of resources needed to run neurons. So if you don't use it, you lose it, it dies. It doesn't synapse. Now those, what are called critical periods, can be anywhere from weeks to months to years. Okay, since since cell birth. Um, so it's called neural Darwinism, based on basically a misunderstanding of Darwin, and that's the notion here that only the strongest cells survive, which is not how evolution works. But anyway. It's kind of a half of how evolution works. So what's happening here is neurons that don't synapse, in other words, aren't useful, now that's like Darwin, so functionally they're not doing anything, they die. Neurons that are useful that get synapses live. But if they don't get synapses, they die. So how, what's the mechanism here? There's a growth factor called neural growth factor. So it's a, it's a chemical messenger. Okay. And it's sent out by, let's call it the receiving neuron, usually from the dendrite, to the other neuron, the, the axon. Sending, I guess, if you want to say it that way. Yeah, let's go with sending. Um, and it sends NGF. And as long as they get NGF, they don't die. It's pretty straightforward. But if they get, so if they don't get NGF, they die. If they get NGF, they don't die. So it's like a dead man's switch on a bomb. That's a really, that, sorry, that was a little dark. But I mean, the idea that, you know, holding the switch and if you die, if you, if you let go, the bomb goes off. Same kind of idea here. If you don't get NGF, you die. Very strange analogy, Dave. Anyway, can't believe I just spoke about myself in the third person. I find that egregious, outrageous, ridiculous. But anyway, so it doesn't get NGF, it dies. This again is a this is actually a clever thing that evolution has done, which is forcing cells to compete for a synapse. So cells compete for other cells to synapse onto them. And the one that gets NGF wins, and the other ones just die. Okay? Anybody in the halls? I mean, I understand that people don't want to be around people too much right now, but still. I guess that's fine. What is it? Who cares? Anyway, um, so it's like a, it's like a competition 
There's a way this isn't like, see, Darwinism is about reproductive fitness, and this is not about reproductive fitness. This isn't cells passing things on to their young. So this is the reason I don't like this term, neural Darwinism. But we know what it means because it's about the strong surviving. Again, that's not what it says in Origin of Species. It's a vast oversimplification, right? And those of you who are biology students are probably not, oh, I can see something in your heads, actually. Yeah, it, it just, it's a misunderstanding. But it's a term that's used now, so we're going to keep using it. It's just, it's annoying to me. So the other one's just done. So the brains are efficient, or sorry, expensive, so they should be efficient. So it, again, it's Darwinian in the sense that the strong survive, but that's not really what Darwin said. And that's not really how evolution works. It just isn't the case. It's Darwinian and it's sort of more in the popular parlance version of it, right? So I remember when I lived in Newfoundland, um, we'd get hit by hurricanes because it's Newfoundland. I mean, it just, and also we'd get hit by hur hurricane force winds and they didn't call it a hurricane, they just called it a Mike Breezy body. So I remember saying, oh, I'm a little bit concerned about that. And a friend of mine said, how old's your house? And I said, I was born, well, born. it was built in 1948 and he said, it's a bit of a Darwinian process here. If it would have blown over, it would have blown over already. So don't worry. And again, he was using it in the sense of the strong survive, not in the sense of your house will reproduce and pass its characteristics on to its young. And that's also not what ha what's happening with these neurons. That's why I don't like the term. So, and I'm sort of harping on this, but you could easily misunderstand it if you know about evolution, how it works. That's the problem I have with this term. So it reinforces misunderstandings of evolution, the idea that fitness means big, strong, big and strong like a bull and doesn't just mean reproductive success, and uh, that that's how evolution works, and it isn't. But if, as long as you understand that this is in a popular parlance sense of how Darwinism works, then you're fine, right? It just isn't a great term. It isn't a great term. All right. So let's go from behavior and look and then make some guesses. Remember I said there's three ways we can look at this. Behavior to brain, brain to behavior, and things that affect both. So let's do that. So let's start with behavior and look at the brain. And we can look at development in little babies. Babies are awesome. I don't know, any, I don't know how you couldn't be pro-baby. Like, I mean, if you just look, babies are the best. There's nothing better in the world than the smell of a newborn baby's head. Like, it's just the greatest. Babies' heads smell great. They just do. Now, babies also have the ability, by the way, to shit on their own heads. Like, it's just, you would, when you're changing, it's like, how did you get it all over yourself? And now, how is it on my feet? We don't even say how tall you are. We just say how long you are. That's how small you are. And you manage to poop on my feet. Just saying. Babies are amazing. But they can't do very much when they're born. <laughs> they don't know much at all. Right? They're kind of, they can't really even move properly. Early on, they can't move. They can flex their joints. Okay. 
But one thing you'll find early on in a newborn baby, and you don't normally notice this, and now that, you, now that I'm going to tell you this, you're going to notice it when you have a kid or around your little brother, really little brother, sister, niece, nephew, whatever, is that you know before they're about three or four weeks old, when they move one arm, like their arm, their leg moves too. Like, it's the whole, oh, I'm going to move the right side of my body. <laughs> and the whole thing moves. And it's because they can't do anything else. Like, that's how it works early on. They can flex their joints. That's about it. You get to one month old, they can do a neat thing where they can orient their hand. So early on, and again, this is just a reflex. When a baby's born, if you put your finger in their palm, they, they grab your palm. That, they have your fingers But if you put your finger on the back of their hand, they just close their hand. They don't turn their hand around and grab your finger, they just close their hand. They just close their hand. Around one month, they can turn their hand and grab your finger. And this is, the cool thing about this is, this is true no matter what your culture, no matter what part of the world you're from, no matter what language you speak, no matter, what color your skin is, no matter what God you believe in or don't believe in, this is just how humans work. So they can, you can orient your hand. That's actually pretty cool. So you can sort of, something's bothering you. If something was bothering you, you can turn around and grab it. Or if you want something, right? At eight months or so, they can do this. This is an incredibly important thing. In fact, moving our digits independently is something only we can do. Even chimps can't do this. At eight months, that's something. And this is when they're also starting to crawl around a bit or pull themselves around. And the biggest problem here is they can now grab things. Right, so they'll put things. You gotta be careful about things like a popcorn kernel because they'll just put it in their mouths and choke. They'll put things up their nose. My sister, hi Steph. I hope she listens to these things, probably, why would she? But I'm gonna tell an embarrassing story to my sister. So when she was really little, she had like a, it's like, oh, there's an infection. And my mom took her to the doctor, and the doctor looked up her nose, and he got some tweezers, and he pulled out two things. The first thing was an apple seed and the second thing was a small Robertson screw. So a little screw, like that big. How did that get us there? But babies will do that. It's like, oh, well, I wonder what happened. What if I could just shove it right the hell up my nose? Because they'll do that. And then they'll cry. And you're like, why did you allow this to happen to me? So that's when you got to sort of really baby-proof your house. Like early on, when you got like a, they can't move, it's like, yeah, just, I don't know, you got to have an open fire over here. As soon as they can move and grab things, They'll move and grab things. And it's funny until they get hurt. <laughs> so, gotta do the baby proofing, right? They're learning. They're trying to figure out how the world works, and you're sitting there leaving screws on the floor. I don't know. <laughs> this, okay, so let's now extrapolate from this to what's perhaps happening in the nervous system. Well, myelination of cells, or of neur neurons, is one of the last steps, right? 
in uh, development. So the form, formation of myelin on cells sort of, there's a big jump around eight months. There are big jumps around one month. So this is probably about myelination. And we, can also, we also know that demyelinating diseases like um, muscular, no, uh, MS. Multiple sclerosis, thank you. We just need the first word. Um, and that's a demyelinating disorder, and people have trouble you know, moving, etc. So this is probably something to do with myelin. See, like I said, these are really, these are going to be guesses. All right. So the language. And well, I have a hole. What am I doing? I went the wrong way, that's why. Uh, I've got a hole. I'm going to hear a whole lecture about language later on. But okay. at birth, babies basically, they cry. And the way the, the information they're giving you is, Something isn't right. That's all the information you get from a, like a newborn baby crying. Which is not even like really crying. There's no tears. <clears throat> they're, they're crying, but they're not weeping, as people would say. So they're basically telling you about hunger and that they've pissed themselves or pooped. You know, that's, that's all that. Or I'm cold, something like that. And the worst part of it is when you're a new parent, you have literally no idea what the problem is, and there is no manual. This thing comes with an owner's manual. And the problem is everyone wants to give you advice, especially people, it seems, that don't have any children, which I always found very strange. So you're sitting there, you've been up for 24 hours, and you're passing the kid back and forth, trying everything. And then eventually it's like, oh my god, she's asleep. And they just Parenting's awesome, but it can be difficult. <laughs> so they're just giving you this, that kind of information. There's not a whole lot there. Now, in a couple of months, they'll start cooing and babbling. So cooing is a really cute baby stuff they do. And babbling is, in a lot of respects, just testing at phonemes they can make. And that's when you usually think, oh, that's not their first word. They said mama. Well, not really, but it's fine. You want to believe that as well. It's pretty cool that the diminutive terms for father and mother in every language, like every language, are basically the same. There are versions of mama and papa, and it might be pa, or it could be da, but they're basically the same thing. There's a pretty good reason that, you know, mom and dad means mom and dad. So they say cooing and babbling, and that's where it's neat, because remember my daughter used to go, Ah, uh, every time she went after she was fed. It was just the neatest thing. The cool thing that happens around six months is their intonation changes. They start, this is really, it's, it's funny at first because they start having, it's like they're doing what we call baby talk. So they'll, they'll say things like, oh, they're talking about And you'll look at them and go, what? Well, makes sense. Um, because they can, or they'll like, ask you questions. Why do you go And you'll say, I have no idea what that meant, but try that again. It's really cool. 
So what they're doing here, first they're testing out phonemes, then they're testing out intonation changes. They're just basically testing out different things that we have in all kinds of human languages. 12 months old, 12 months old will have maybe a vocabulary of about 10 words. They'll understand a lot more than that, but they might say about 10 things. The mama, dada, and then there'll be other things. But like my son, I remember him, he was big on the word bath. He loved that. He loved the word light. You'd see a light, which is called light. Baths. Right. Balls, you know, any kind of toy they like. It might be something, a bottle, named for a bottle, or for, for being hungry, something like that. But typically, it's, it's, it's very, there's one word. A two-year-old may know about 300 words. You can't have a conversation with a two-year-old, but they can, if you look at a two-year-old and say, don't do that, put that down. They'll, they'll know what you mean, usually. may have as many as a thousand words. You can actually have a conversation with a three-year-old. It's not a deep conversation. You can't get their analysis of last night's U.S. midterm elections for three-year-olds. You know, there's probably some weird three-year-old somewhere you can do that with, but typically no. You look at a little British kid and go, so what do you think of Brexit then? You think that's not going to work. But you can't have a conversation. maybe a, about 1,500 words, and they'll use sentences. And they'll understand number. They'll understand number. So you can say, you know, how many of these are there? Go get me two of those, that kind of thing. By six, a kid can understand tens and thousands of words and uses maybe 2,000 a day, which is not that horribly different from us. We might use 5,000 words a day. 5,000 different words. And you might have a vocabulary depending on your language. English has a lot of words, so it's 50,000 words. You probably know 50,000 words as an adult. That's a, pre that's a pretty good size vocabulary. So while this is all happening, number of words, the other thing that's happening is the ability to put words together. So around two and a half, eh, even earlier than that. So around one and a half, I guess, people, kids go from one word stage to two words. So they'll start things like give ball, uh, daddy home. Like they aren't sentences, but they're, they're expressing thoughts, right? right? Three, three and a half, they just speak in sentences. Sometimes younger, sometimes that's as early as say two and a half. Just trying to think this. Yeah, Maddie was only about only two. She's a pretty bright kid, but she's 29, stop calling her a kid. Um, but and she was also learning two languages at once. So she was learning in French and English at the same time. The cool thing is, by the way, bilingual uh, households, kids don't have any problem learning two languages. It's not a big deal. Anybody that tells you it is either doesn't know or might have an agenda. And that agenda is often, I don't like the Frenchies, but um, just saying. 
you realize this town tried to ban French in 1990? No. So, um, our daughter was learning two languages at once, and she was, she came into our, I remember the first sentence she said. She came into our bedroom on a Saturday morning because that's what you do when you're little. You come and you wake your parents up because your parents are finally like, I don't have to go to work, I can sleep in, and then your, your toddler comes in and wakes you up. And they'll, you know what, your kids will do it to you as payback for you doing it to your parents. But anyway, and she comes in and she wanted to eat, and she said, jus, jus, like she wanted juice. And then she said toast, which is great because toast is the same word in both languages. And then she, she crawled up in the bed and she was saying, jus, Toast, toast, toast. And then she said, hey, what's that, a pillowcase? I don't, excuse me? Yeah, it's a pillowcase, and you just spoke in a sentence. And she looked at me, and she went, juice. Yeah, juice, please, juice, juice, please, juice, please. Okay, I think she speaks in sentences now. But then there was no more. And then that night I was watching a hockey game and I had her sitting on my lap because I tried to turn my, my first, first kid into a hockey game. It didn't work. The second one, it's worked out, but he just likes all teams, which I don't think is correct. You have to learn to love and hate in sports. But anyway, she's sitting on my lap. We're watching the game. Everything's fine. And there was a player then for the Montreal Canadiens, number 11, a guy from Finland, and his name was Zachary Koivu. Anyway, she's sitting on my lap and I'm a Montreal fan, so I was watching this half game, and my daughter just goes, hey, look, Dad, it's Zachary Koivu. And I went, you've really been paying attention to all this hockey I talk about, haven't you? And then, within two weeks, all sentences. There's no more of give juice, want toast. It was like, so what's for breakfast? Like, <laughs> completely changed. Kids are awesome that way. Like, it's just like, that's when you look and go, I remember when you pooped on your own head, and now you're talking in complete sentences. It's a little weird. Human language is amazing. It's, it's incredible, it's something only we do. So an adult has, like I said, a vocabulary of 50,000 words. That's pretty high, by the way. So what's this correlate with? There's a part of your brain right about there. Broke this area. There's a left one or a right one, like most everything in your brain. Uh, the left one is more responsible for creating language, the right one's responsible for creating that intonation I was talking about, an emotion in words. That's an extremely general and a simplification. When we talk about language in a couple of weeks, I'll tell you that it's a little more, I'll, I'll explain how, how it was more complicated. But there's a lot of dendritic development in Broca's area, and there are spurts around eight months, around 13 months, around two and a half. And they seem to correlate very nicely then with those starting to speak, starting to speak with a couple of words, starting to speak in sentences. Language is it's, it's an incredibly, it's a fascinating human thing. Like it, it's wild that we even do it. And nothing else does anything remotely close to this on this planet. Like it's, it's pretty awesome. Thank you. Okay. Cognitive development, this is the idea of looking at just your, your ability to reason, things like that. This is a little tougher to correlate with brain development. 
So you can look up the various Piaget steps, I'm pretty sure stages, I'm pretty sure that's how you would spell Piaget, but I'm not sure. Um, the data are at best suggestive, but the data are at best suggestive of Piaget as well, right? There's growth spurts that happen roughly at the same time as these various stages in Piaget's uh, stages of development, but beyond that, there's not a whole great deal. Um, but we do see growth spurts, cortical growth spurts, around three and a half especially. And something really special happens around three and a half, and that's when kids develop theory of mind. Do you know the theory of mind? Have I talked about that? I teach two classes in this same room. It gets all very good. Some of the same people are in both those classes. Okay, I don't think I have. So, theory of mind is the idea that I can read your mind. I can't actually read your mind, but I have a rough idea of how your thinking works. It's a rough idea. There's no way I know everything going on in your head. But I have a pretty good idea of the broad strokes, right? Just like you do about me. So if you, there's a great experiment you can do that's been done many times. You take a box of, uh, you know, about this size of box, you know, Smarties? Take a box of Smarties, but take out the Smarties and put in some rocks or marbles. You shake it up in front of a kid, three-year-old kid. And the kid get excited because, hey, candy. And then you pour it out, and the kid will be a little bit, the kid will be surprised. Also, don't be a jerk. When the experiment's done, give the kids some Smarties. Don't be an ass, okay? How much do Smarties cost? Just buy some Smarties. Anyway. As soon as that's done, you ask the kid. And they're all surprised. They say they're still surprised. What did you think was in the box? And the kid go, well, rocks. And you look at them and then, why are you surprised? <laughs> I don't know. They don't know their theory of mind. They don't understand how their own freaking minds work. It's not even they don't understand how your mind works or your mind works. They don't understand their own mind. Homer Simpson said it best. Kids are stupid. So, because if they were smart, they'd be adults already. <laughs> and also, kids are great. What with the internet, they pretty much raise themselves. And you can teach them to hate what you hate. Um, a lot of respects, that's true. Kid about three and a half, the kid knows. They know how their own mind. They, they can recollect back and go, I thought that was smarts. They get it. That's one way you can do it. The other way thing you can do is you can give them little stories. You can say, okay, mom comes home and puts away groceries and has bought a chocolate bar. Mom takes, you see mom take the chocolate bar and put it away, and you go to get it. He has to get all the way through. You understand what's going on? You get to, so you repeat it back. Okay. Mom takes the chocolate bar when you're not looking and puts it in her dresser because it's for her later after you're in bed because you're a horrible little drain on society. You don't, you don't say that. Then you ask the kid, who's like three, where do you look for the chocolate bar? Because you want it. The kid goes, well, in mommy's dresser. <laughs> oh, you idiot. You don't say that again, because again, that's me. Why wouldn't you look where you saw mom put it away in the kitchen? 
Listen, dresser. You didn't see that part. And now look at she's confused. Like, is there chocolate available for me? Again, three and a half year old, you ask them the question, they go, I look in the kitchen where I thought it was, but she hid it from me. It's like you can't play hide and seek with little kids. Well, you can, but they hide in the same place over and over. Even they find them, they're like, my favorite is they'll hide behind, you know, behind the curtains. And you'll find them, and you'll say, you know, it was pretty easy to find you because I could see your feet. Then you do that, you go behind and say, see, see where that's my feet, so I can see where you were. And then you go, okay, let's, let's play again. So you go one, two, hide, you know, you do that, and the kid goes. And it's frustrating until you realize the kid has no idea how theory, they don't understand how your mind works. They just don't. They don't have the ability to put it together. And people, a lot of times, uh, there's a whole theory out there that autism spectrum disorders are a malfunctioning of the theory of mind module, this idea that it's like just doesn't work properly. So there's something here, because we can see these growth spurts, uh, cortical growth spurts, um, okay in half, but there's not a whole lot else we can say here. Questions on that? Okay, good. So let's talk about environmental effects on, that we can see have effects on the brain, on development, and effects on behavior. Because the logic here is if something's affecting behavior, and it's affecting the neural substrate of that, um, we can probably make a pretty good guess that that's part, an important developmental thing, step if you follow me, so let's think about rats. We can take rats uh, and give them two different environments. One environment is a typical rat cage, which is just, it's a, they're about that big, okay? And they, they hang in racks. You may have even, well, why do I think you might have seen them? I've been playing with rats since I was, 19, working in labs, but yeah, 20. But that's us. And they're just wire mesh. They're not fun, they're not cruel, but they're not fun for the rat. There's not a lot for the rat to do. We talked about the rat park. What if we took some rats and enriched their environment? And the first experiments on this were this simple. They were 10 minutes of the, each day taking the rat out of the cage and letting it just crawl around and play with it. That's all it is. Once you're used to using rats in experiments, um, you let them crawl, like that's how you carry the rat anyway. At first, there's a special carrying thing and all this stuff and you're very frightened of them and you don't understand rats. Eventually, you just pick them up, put them on your shoulder and walk to the experimental room. And then just sit there. One day, when gnawing in one of my earrings, which was like a little annoying. Like you hear these little teeth like, it's like, well, I can't slap you because I would kill you if I slapped you. 
will you not do that? <laughs> you know, it's like, please? That's when I stopped carrying the rats on my shoulders. So just 10 minutes of play. And then they're sacrificed, which means they're killed. If you ever see in the paper that the rats were sacrificed, it's just a euphemism for killing them. Uh, they, there's no ceremony. There's no God you're killing them for. It's, it's not really a sacrifice in that respect. Uh, so you kill the rats, and then you take a look at the size of their cortex, and it's thicker than non-enriched rats. So does this relate? So that's an environmental effect. It relates to brain size, like meta brain, but also relates to something cognitive. If you put the rats on what's called an eight-arm radial maze, which looks like this. Maybe I'll do it on there. Screw around as much. So an eight-arm radial maze. Let's see. It looks like this. So there's a central platform. There are eight arms radiating out from the middle. That's ugly. Let's just do that. Like the spokes of a wheel. And there's food at the end of each arm. So there's food at the end of each arm. And the rat's task is to get all the food. Pretty simple. Oh, they can't see where the food is. It's, it's in a recess, sort of well. And rats don't have incredibly great eyes anyway. And then you're going to say, well, what about them smelling them? There's all kinds of controls that are done. We aren't stupid when we design these experiments. Uh, those are good questions, but we take care of them. So well, I don't know about you, but what I would do if I was presented with this task is I, you know, <laughs> start here, then I go here, then I just go in order. Oddly, rats don't do that. They go in a haphazard order, but they don't make mistakes. After five or six times on one of these mazes, uh, they're getting the first, seven of their first eight choices are to arms that have food. So they don't go back down and arm. There's a great piece of gear, the eight-arm radial maze. Okay? So these kind of mazes, for example, rats are better at than the enriched rats than ones that are kept in regular hanging wire mesh cages. Questions on that? The cortex, plasticity just means um, ability to change. Plastic, when we say something is plastic, we mean it can change. That's all we need. And that meaning of the word plastic was around before the meaning of the word plastic, meaning, I don't know, that's plastic, but it's, it's, it's a different, that, that meaning was around before the meaning of the substance. This means it can change easily. It can be moved easily. Okay? The plasticity that we have in our brains certainly decreases with age. And this is true in all kinds of other animals, not just humans. So what's happening here is experience is fine-tuning connections. It's called, you know, we talk about synaptic pruning. 
and neural Darwinism. This is the idea that certain synapses, also certain synapses will just cease to be active. And if that happens, there's no NGF being given in that synapse. Well, a synapse doesn't die, but it's sort of the original cell will die. It's actually good, but again, we want to be uh, sort of looking for efficient. So we can talk about here critical and sensitive periods. So there are critical periods for certain things in vision, for example. I talked about the um, critical period for depth perception. It's about two and a half. I'm never, ever going to be able to see 3D like you do. The whole world is flat to me, which is fine because it's always been like that for me, so I don't notice any difference. I just don't. The world looks the same as it does. It always looked this way to me so far. Because those cells never got the fire because of the problem I have with my eyes and the fact they're always shaking around, and because of that, you can't get that disparity, right? make those cells fine. It's true for language. We can talk about critical periods in language. It, you know, you could talk about horrible stories of, of kids who are horrifically abused and don't have any interaction with people, but I don't want to talk about horrible things. I want to talk about language learning in general and think about, for example, there's a critical, let's look at a critical period here, maybe a sensitive period. We, we tend to use the word sensitive period rather than critical. Okay. Most of the people here today are, how many people here are from, born, like went to school in Canada? Most of you, good. And everybody here went to school in English? That is from Canada. Elementary school in English? Good, good, good. Okay, but you did learn French. How do you say that? I'm gonna, let's pick somebody. How do you say that? Yeah, that's right. You didn't do the R right. Yeah, no, it's not like that either, unless you're in the East End of Montreal. <laughs> it's rouge. It's back here. It's really hard to do. That took me 20 years. For you, it's trivial. For my wife, it's trivial. It's trivial for you, too, I think. Most people do you rouge, and you know you know what someone means when they say rouge, right? It just it sounds weird, but it, you know what it means, right? So you can't make that sound. This is the weird part of it. There are certain phonemes that just aren't in English. There's certain phonemes that aren't in French. Th. That's not a thing in French. So if you're from France, you will hear my, my, my uh, I guess he's my ex-brother-in-law because he's not married to my sister-in-law anymore, so whatever. Yves, and he's from France, and Yves talks like this. His th is a z. And my wife's, my, my, my wife's side of the family are from Quebec, and they'll say, instead of z, they'll say t. Right, right. So instead of three, my, my mother-in-law will say tree. Now she'll actually she's pretty good now, so she'll 
doesn't matter. So it's, it's even interesting, it's different in different parts of the world even speaking the same mother tongue. You can't make those sense. You can actually convince yourself or sort of learn how to do them, but it's not automatic the way it is if you learn a language very young. Because the critical or sensitive period for learning a language is about until about five. You can learn another language. I speak passable French, but I have, a, I have an accent. I have an English, I have an Anglo, North American English speaking accent, and I speak French. Which you can hear a mile away, even if I'm trying my very best to pronounce it. Right? Again, that's almost certainly because of a, a sensitive period for learning language. You can learn languages as an adult. How many people here learned a language as, you know, past about, say, 12? Let's go 10 or 12. I mean, enough you could actually speak it. Because, okay, so it's literally just me. There's two of us. So there's two of us. But yeah, we can speak. I'm sitting here speaking English to you, and it works. We have spoken a little French. It kind of it works, right? You understand what I'm saying? She might just be being nice to me. This is plausible. So, but we both have accents and we speak that other language, right? Had we learned them young enough, it wouldn't matter. My grandfather, uh, well, I, two, both my grandfathers spoke multiple languages. My, my, my mom's dad uh, spoke French and English. And he could just switch back and forth. Not unlike, so the prime minister could do that, for example, but you can kind of hear a bit of an Anglo thing when he speaks French, but it's pretty good. His father was amazing that way. He could just bang, bang, no problem. Uh, my other grandfather could speak French, English, German, and Italian. Guess what country is on? Switzerland, boy. Rob Beck is a German-Swiss name. So he learned to speak French and Italian and German, and he could just switch back and forth. English came later and he had a really cool accent when he spoke English. But I remember my wife saying, your, your grandfather just sounds like an old Quebecer. I said, there's a reason for that. And she said, what is Because he's an old Quebecer. His name may have been Ken, but his father's name, my great-grandfather was named Toussaint Evangeliste Claude because he was born on November 1st, All Saints Day. So his name was literally Toussaint, All Saints. He went by Tom. <laughs> That's what's saying. How are you? What's your name? My name's Steve. And uh, who are you? My name's All Saints. Tom. My name's Tom. So what's happening here, though, is this shows us that there are critical periods in language learning. You can learn a language as a past being a kid. We're evidence of this. But you're going to have an accent that a, that a native speaker would pick up. Right, just like rouge, or rouge, which is, like I said, kind of east. I was being a little sarcastic with Eastern Montreal, but not completely. Well, there are a lot more than the, the which I still don't think I'm doing properly, but I think it sounds okay. And that's, the environmental effect here is literally just being around people speaking the language, because that's all you have to do to learn. Right, so with our daughter, we just spoke English and French around her. 
And she picked up both, though her French isn't very great. Well, she would say it's not very great anymore. It's actually pretty good. With our son, we made the mistake, frankly, of just picking one because we found that he was autistic. And it's like, well, let's make his life easier. Turns out we, the data show we should have just st stuck with both. Anyway. So those are environmental effects that are neither good nor bad. I guess the enrichment's good. Uh, by the way, a lot of people will took these results about the enriched rats and said, oh, I know what to do. We'll put all kinds of, you know what babies need in their ba bedrooms is just all kinds of alphabets everywhere. And Shut up. It doesn't do anything. You're doing that for you. And if that's fine, that's fine. The baby doesn't care. The baby is not going to learn how to read and write any earlier than its peers Babies need his primary color. Oh, shut up. Just shut up. Yes, because until, you know, 1960, when there was much more variety in paint, no one learned anything. You, you, as soon as you have, you have a kid, people find out you get all kinds of unsolicited things. Just say, where are the data backing up what you just said? Just, just say that. Until it pisses them off, they stop telling you that. I, I told my daughter over and over again about things about hockey. Not, nothing worked. Nothing stuck except that thing about Saku Koiva. So these are kind of either maybe neutral or sort of nice. There's bad things. Okay. Uh, most of you, all of you, most of you are too young to remember this. Probably all of you are too young to remember uh, Romania as uh, a member of the or South Pak is a communist country. Um, it was bad. Really, really bad. It was kind of, they had this weird dictator, a guy named Nikolai Ceausescu, and um, he was horrible. And it was really horrible. <laughs> People are having lots of kids. They had lots of kids because they made abortion illegal, and women had to be checked out by a doctor every couple of months to make sure they A, had an abortion, and B, they were pregnant. Isn't totalitarianism great? Um, so suddenly there's all kinds of unwanted kids. This is in the 80s. And they're in these orphanages, and they're not nice orphanages. Okay. They are not nice. So what happens is, um, when the Berlin Wall falls and when communism falls and Ceausescu's deposed in a glorious but violent revolution, um, all this stuff comes out and they go around to these places and they see, it's the same, you know what it would be like? It would be like if people found out, found about residential schools now and they were still running. The world would be like, what the hell? That's horrible, those poor kids. That that's, was the reaction people had. The difference was, of course, this wasn't taking people and trying to destroy their culture and language. This was all the same people. But I guess it's the closest thing you could maybe try to get your head around. So what happens is the whole world sees these, and it's like, this is an extremely poor country. There's no, so what happens if the kids get adopted? And they end up in places like, uh, a lot of them end up in the UK, a big chunk, but all over Western Europe, some in North America. Um, and the, you, you, it was bad. I, the kids chained to beds. Like, it was horrible, okay? It was, it was inhuman. 
like I said, if, if you, the only thing you can think of maybe probably is, and it's, it's a weird hypothetical, is if they were still running, if this place was still a residential school. And the world kind of, well, it was still running. We have now an experiment in nature. It's not a nice thing to say, but we have one. So we, we can follow these people, and these people now are older than you guys. They're, they're Jesus, into their 40s. You know. The ones that were adopted before about two, so these were little babies and toddlers, they're fine. The older they are, the worse shape they're It's, uh, it's pretty awful. So the, the, the later ones, uh, their health, their IQ is below. It's a horrible, sad story, but we did. The only, I, I don't want to say the good thing that came out of it, because that is just horrible and sensitive and wrong. We found out something that we probably already knew. There's no such thing as crack babies. Just letting you know, there's no such thing as crack babies. When crack cocaine became a thing in the early 80s, people got really upset because, because now it wasn't just white people taking cocaine. But um, did I say, I think it's the quiet part loud there. Uh, so there are people smoking crack and they're pregnant. You shouldn't do that, by the way. That's not a thing. Don't do that. Anyway. Again, taking the controversial position that while you're pregnant, you shouldn't smoke crack. People were really worried, oh no, there's going to be crack babies. It always seems like when it's for people who aren't the white people. Anyway, um, okay. This is another case where we have an experiment, because a lot of times these are unwanted kids. They put up for adoption, and when that happens, their environment changes, they're fine. Then you're saying, well, Dave, you said it was okay. Yeah, but that means that their environment changed. If you'd left them in the environment with mom and dad who devoted their lives to smoke and rock, you'd have a different, a different person. It's about the, any kid, like, if they stay with that family, the problem is the lifestyle. When I say lifestyle, I mean like, you hang around bad people. You devote your life to crack so you forget to feed your kid, that kind of thing. It's not the drug itself, but it's a, sort of a side effect of the drug, but in the end, it means the So, this, both these examples show us that, as I said before the other day, if there's an insult to the nervous system early on, it can be dealt with. It's when it's older that it's more of a problem. I'm going to look at that with language, for example, as I said, when, you know, not being able to make that phoneme at the beginning of the word woosh. All right. Before we wrap this one up, questions, comments, anything? You're very quiet, which is fine. Yeah, please. Uh, you don't have to. No, sure. But can you give us an example of a sentence in French? Of a sentence in French? Yeah, just all right, like in French, like just for you. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what do you want me to say? Uh, 
Dans mon sac, j'ai une batterie. Et aussi... Rien. Il y a un AirTag ici. Parce que c'est possible pour moi de laisser mon, euh, mon sac dans une place. Et, euh, je ne me souviens pas où. So, I mean, you know what I mean, but it's... it's, it's, it's Give me two days, I'm fine. But I have to kind of be immersed in it. Start, I start thinking in French, and things change in my grammar. Yeah. Whoops. So development is a tendency. It's called developmental canalization. And it goes okay even if things are suboptimal. Suboptimal is remaining an orphan. Suboptimal is your mom smoke crack all the time. But suboptimal for learning French is not hearing French around your house. You know, like it's a matter of perspective. But there's this notion, there's this thing, it's a sort of, um, Tendency is fine, I guess. Developmental canalization just means that development tends, it still follows the same route. Right? So we all have different childhoods. We all have different childhoods from different parts of the world. We've got at least three continents represented just in this room with a small group, right? Because we've got Asia, Europe, and North America. And we get different languages. I'm going to guess there's probably five languages in here. Just making something up, but I'm probably at least, we know it's at least two. Probably four or five. Yeah, we all can speak a language, right? At least one. We all, so the, the, the order that's gone in, the, the order that the development process has gone in is the same for everybody. Uh, we're all more or less able-bodied as far as our ability to move around. That all happened at the same order at the same time, even though we all lived in vastly different places. So there's this, this idea of developmental canalization. Does development continue on into early adulthood? Yes, it does. But there's so much made of that that is completely and utterly, as I, I said the other day, it just, it's, it, in fact, I find it infuriating because when we say that the brain isn't finished developing yet, we tend to think then that people like all of you are still children. Stop till you're 25. Oh, shut up. Yeah, that's all true. But it's nothing like a baby or a fetus changing, developing. The rate is so completely different as to be a meaningless statement, actually. And as you've probably seen here, there's been a lot of me in this last couple saying, that's probably like this, and it's sort of like that, and that kind is happening over here. So it's kind of hard to correlate behavioral development and neural development. It's not super easy. I mean, for some things, especially things that are human universals, which is what we're all talking about, uh, it probably can be done, but it's not trivial. It's, it's, it's not a simple task. Again, complicated machine up here. What are we doing? You want, you want to start vision or you want to stop early? 
Because it's queued up, I can do it. I don't give a shit either way. But if you want to leave early, somebody say something. Maybe like you can start in the next class. Yeah, that's fine. That's that's all I wanted to hear. I just want to hear somebody say something. Yeah, okay, so we'll pack this up for today. Stop. Yeah, that, that, yeah, there you go. That's all I need. When I ask, don't do it in the middle of a lecture like 30 minutes in. Stop would be a problem. <laughs> Probably get five of these. But, uh, right, so next time we'll start talking about vision. Uh, and I'll see you all next week. Thanks, everybody. So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to, uh, 
put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.